to the Red Dog Road Podcast, a program for people seeking a deeper perspective on the outdoors, sports, and personal performance. And now, here is your host, Nick Pinizzato. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Red Dog Road Podcast. This is episode number 11, Is Poaching an Epidemic? And I'm going to start this episode off by just making fun of myself because we tried to do the intro. And as I said, this is episode 11. I had to stop myself and I said, Mike, is this actually episode 11? (laughs) So we're off to a splendid start uh, today. But this is episode 11 and we're glad you joined us again. And you may hear our friend and co-host, Mr. Mike Groman, chuckling in the background there. And Mike, you pulled off a pretty spectacular thing this morning. And I should point out that you and I were doing this recording mid-afternoon because that's when my son is sleeping and we we both happen to be available. But uh, without me taking up too much airspace, why don't you tell everyone listening about your exciting morning? Well, before everybody starts to think about how awesome I am, I want to share some of that responsibility (laughs) of you not knowing what episode we were on because you asked me and I said, hold on, let me check my phone because I didn't know either. So one of these times we're going to have to talk about the B team because to us, this is really hilarious, but to everybody else, I think they need to know what the B team is first, but today was definitely not B team material. Uh, I was able to go turkey hunting this morning. The first time I've been out hunting in Pennsylvania in four years, and it was just a fluke thing. I was supposed to be on a trip out, uh, out of town and my ride was not available. So we had to make change plans in a hurry last night and we're leaving tomorrow morning. So I told my wife, I said, I think I'm going to put some stuff together and just go out in the woods and just enjoy myself. Just take a day and wound up getting a turkey this morning. So it was a really exciting morning for me. Really appreciated being out. It was on state game lands and it was a nice mature bird, two year, two year old bird at 19, 18, 19 pounds, uh, just, just over, you know, half inch, three quarter inch spurs. So um, really nice to know that the old man hasn't lost it. No, you definitely haven't lost it. And I want to point out for, for those of you listening that didn't grow up trying to hunt in Pennsylvania, one of the, it has more hunters per square mile than any other state in the country. And on top of that, to do it on a state game land where they get ton, a ton of traffic and to call in a turkey like Mike did this morning is a heck of an accomplishment. So he's downplaying it a little bit there. But uh, I got to say, when I was, I was sitting in a turkey blind this morning myself in Ohio and freezing and feeling sorry for myself because the birds I heard, they flew down, hit the ground, and then they just vanished in the thin air. I never saw them again. And Mike sends text me this picture, and I didn't even know he was turkey hunting. And there it is, this nice long beard laying on the ground. So, um, And then when he told me it was on state game lands, I just thought, man, that's that's a heck of an accomplishment. So congratulations to you, man. Four-year four break, that's a heck of a way to break the ice. It is. I was, I was just, it was lucky. I'm not going to lie to you. I, it was a situation where what really tripped it off was I was in this mindset today where it was almost like a bonus day. I wasn't supposed to have it. So I had no expectations. And I went out, got up early. My wife, she was still even chirping in my ear last night saying, just sleep in <laughs> because I've been, I've been living on about four hours sleep with uh, all the school stuff that we have to get done here toward the end of the semester. And something just kept gnawing at me that I wanted just to be out and spend some time alone out in nature. And the alarm went off. And I I tell you what, I just rolled my old carcass out of bed and got up. And the next thing you know, I was driving. 
and wound up parking there. And you knew you and I had this conversation last week when you talked about being home and seeing so many deer years ago. The, I, I used to hunt this game lands before my son was born. So o- almost over 14, 15 years ago. And then I pulled myself away for, for other reasons. I was experiencing other, or was lucky to have other hunting opportunities out at your, your place, Nick in Salzburg. But I wanted to start reintroducing myself to this location and take a little pressure off of my place up in New York. And I decided I'm just going to go and and just wander around for the morning and and have no expectations at all. And wound up hearing a bird across the the valley, you know, there's a creek there. And um, as the crow flies, it was probably only about a mile, but to get there would have been almost three miles. And the funny thing was, is I was walking out with, with this bird reflecting back on that gobbler or first thing this morning, which was the only one that I'd heard, but he was talking pretty nicely in my twenties. I would have been on my horse running to get around to try and work that bird. And at 49, I sat there and just listened to him gobble and was just tickled about it. Didn't hear anything on my side, but I still had that, that focus of, I, I don't I don't care what happens today. And I went up, sat down, never even made a call until probably 7.30 was when I decided to get up, stretch my old legs a little bit and, and kind of explore this little field area that I finally made my way to. And I sat, you know, after I sat and I was truthful, I'm not going to lie. I was scouting for deer, <laughs> like a place to deer hunt with a bow. And I was just about to go five more yards when I, I said I was going to, actually make a turkey call at this one location It'd be my first call in the morning and it was through this goldenrod field and i was crunching i was trying not to but i was crunching some old goldenrods as i was stepping and a turkey gobbled 50 60 yards in front of me on this down on this bench and i don't know how he didn't see me unless he was just over the next bench over but it sounded close i hunkered down turned around and backed my way out made a call to test him to see if he had seen me he answered right back and I thought this, this might work out. So I gradually started working my way back to where I was because I was at a nice little pinch point and on a gas line. I knew he would probably want to, if he would, wouldn't come to the field, he'd probably walk this gas line right to me, but both of them led to me. So either way, if he was going to come, I would have a chance. And so halfway to where I was going to sit, I called again, just another two or three light notes again. And then I never even waited for his response. I just kept moving to where I wanted to sit down and, in that transition, he gobbled again and he was closer. So I knew he was coming, got back to, uh, the tree where I wanted to be set up. And I had my gun facing both where that field pinches down and where that gas line comes up. I made one last call sitting there again, just another two or three notes in a purr, put my call down. And I said, that's going to be it because the game lands, you don't give them too much. And within a minute, I hear him gobble again and I know he's on the, he's on the gas line. So he's coming. So I shift my weight, get the gun right there. And within a second or two later, all of a sudden here's this beautiful red head that's catching all of the sunlight from behind it. And he comes up and I'm, I'm trying to decide, is that a Jake? Is it an older bird? So I was going to wait. He comes up and I see that, that rope swing out in front of his chest. I thought, Oh, he's a long beard, but he already had me pinned. He was already looking in my direction from that last call. And so this isn't one where you call them and make them break out into full strut and things like that. You wreck them right where they stand. And that's what I did. And it turned out to be a great morning. A couple things I want to point out from your story. The first thing is, isn't the hardest thing truly about turkey hunting is just getting yourself out of bed and getting dressed. Because once you get in the truck, 
and you're awake and you step out of the truck to go hunt, you're there. So <laughs> yeah. congrats to you to be able to, to do that part. That's the hardest part I've, I've always felt about turkey hunting. Once you're out there and getting the fresh air, you can, you're ready to go. The other thing I want to say is you, what you call luck, I actually listen to your story and I hear a, a pretty darn good turkey hunter that's got a lot of experience because you had to do so many things right in order to get that bird. And the first being, as soon as you spotted him, you recognized, man, I got to get down and get out of here quickly. And then the next thing I need to do is I need to be looking for a setup point, but I want to be calling to him to, to see, first of all, if he saw me and also to see if he's interested. And you were able to do all of that, maneuver yourself into a good position. And then you also had the experience to know that a lot of times those hunts, if the bird's on edge, they can go bad really quickly. And as soon as you had a shot opportunity, you took it. So, um, I don't think any successful, I mean, I, I guess you could just have total luck at some point. I had one, one time in Nebraska where I was just walking over the crest of a hill and I saw this gobbler coming right toward me and I just dropped my butt down in the grass and <laughs> let him walk right to me. That was pretty lucky. I didn't have to do too much, but um, I'll take any amount of luck in the turkey woods, but I think you obviously showed a ton of skill and patience to be able to pull it off. So I'm proud of you. Congratulations, but I'm not at all surprised. And oh, now, thank you. Absolutely. And now I'm motivated to get back out there. And actually, this is a great transition into our walk down Red Dog Road. Great works are performed not by strength, but by perseverance. Now, I wish I made that quote up, but I actually got that from a fortune cookie a few weeks ago, my wife and I ordered Chinese, uh, which we're somewhat ashamed of because when we order Chinese, we order too much. And I really believe in that fortune. It's very simple. Great works performed not by strength, but by perseverance. In other words, there are no shortcuts. And we've kind of talked about this in maybe some different ways in previous episodes, but this is a really cool time to bring this one up. I've had it sitting here on my desk and I've been waiting for the right time to talk about this. And I think the right time is now largely because of the story that Mike just told us about his turkey hunt this morning and the fact that he had a choice. He could have laid there and not taken an opportunity to get out and do some hunting, or he could have got his, as he called him, his old bones uh, out of bed, cracking the whole way to his uh, hunting clothes, I'm sure, and, and getting dressed and getting out there in the woods. And so it wasn't the skill of being a good turkey hunter that did that. It was just the fact that he wanted to do the work and it, he was going to, he was going to persevere. The fact that he was tired, the fact that he had other things planned didn't get in the way of him going out and doing that. And that was just one small example, but you can translate that into any aspect of life that we have. So uh, even if it's going to work in the morning, you have a couple of choices, right? You can get up, you can not get a shower, not get really woken up, come go flying in and show up, right at starting time. And chances are you're probably not going to perform the way you want to perform that day, or you can make sure you're up early. You can be refreshed. You can get there early and you can lay out your work for the day and you can attack it and get things done. All the time you always hear whenever, whenever people talk about, we use athletes for an example, the greatest athletes of all time. So we'll talk about Michael Jordan. Okay. One of the things that always impressed me about the stories you would hear about Michael Jordan wasn't about just how great he was as a basketball player, but it was about his work ethic. People would say, he's always the first one in the gym. He's always the last one to go. 
just tireless, tireless work ethic. And you hear that about all of the greatest athletes. And you can also see that I can see that in the people that I work with in my career. And I'm sure Mike can see it in his career. He probably sees students in his classroom that they're working their butt off, that he knows they're just going to be successful. And it's not just because, I mean, you can be gifted with intelligence. You can be gifted with talent. You can be a experienced turkey hunter like Mike is. But if it weren't for the perseverance, the desire to get up, the desire to go give it your best all the time, by the way, that's what great is. Great is giving your best all the time, not just some of the time. It led to a great accomplishment. What do you think, Mike? Well, I think you touched on a lot of points that the listener out there should really kind of reflect on because it's really easy to... Actually, I I can't use the same word in the same definition, but doing nothing or not doing your best is easy. But persevering and giving your all does take a lot of mental focus. It takes a lot of physical effort as well. And that can really wear on you. And I think that's probably where I was this morning. We had to prepare for practicals, which were last week. And the... I'm the lead instructor in one course and there was a lead instructor for the other course that we combined these practicals. So they were technically getting two practicals in in one sitting. But the amount of preparation of bringing cases together took hours and hours and hours. And I just wanted that little break. So I w- I've been persevering for two weeks. And even though I looked at going out this morning as a break, I, I can totally see your point where it would have been easier just to get some sleep and sleep in and get a few extra hours. So sometimes perseverance can take many shapes and forms in many levels of intensity, but the outcome's always the same. It's always success. And even if you wouldn't have shot a bird this morning, as I was listening to your story, I had a, a smile came to my face whenever you talked about just being out there and you were just in the moment and just listening. And I thought, you know, I mean, Mike was, he was just in a great place out there and it didn't matter success to you wasn't going to be bringing home a bird necessarily, but because you had that mindset and I think that you were in a good place that led to ultimately you having success out there. So I just, uh, I think that was just the perfect story this morning and a perfect time for me to introduce uh, this little piece of paper that's been sitting on my desk for a few weeks now. And a a simple thing is a fortune and a fortune cookie. So uh, thanks for setting the example, Mike. And uh, hopefully a lot of people are hearing that and they're also as inspired as I am. So with that, Let's go ahead and jump into the meat of this episode, and the title of it is "Is Poaching an Epidemic? And I'm bringing this up because, and I'll tell you, it's it's not like, uh, those of you listening, it's not like Mike and I have 15 episodes laid out and we just are working our way down the list. Sometimes it's something that just comes to mind, and we say, you know what, that'd be a great show, let's do it. And in this case, it's more about a current event, so... I was doing some social media, putting out some news for the National Deer Alliance this morning for my job. And one of the stories that's out there, unfortunately, in the national news is the fact that there are some deer walking around in Oregon that have arrows sticking out of them. And unfortunately, there are also some images. And it's clearly a case where someone has shot these deer with arrows. They're field points on the arrows. They're not broadheads. And the deer, they seem fine, other than the fact that they have arrows sticking in them. One of them, remarkably, just kind of behind the jaw and in its head, and it remarkably didn't hit anything vital, and another one kind of through the neck and shoulder area. And just seeing that story, and then also because I post a lot of the current deer news across the country, 
for the National Deer Alliance, I see these instances of poaching all the time. And it's very frustrating because when you see these stories, it's irresponsible. It's a bad reflection on true sportsmen. And it's just it's just bad for for what we're about. It's bad for everything we do. It sheds a negative light. We have so few opportunities as sportsmen to show our sport in a, I guess, an attractive or positive light. A lot of people don't see all the positives, like the stories that Mike just told. A lot of people don't hear that, the average person, but they see these images and they, they make an impression on people. And then I started thinking back to just my lifetime and poaching incidents that I was aware of or heard people talk about. And I just, I wanted to bring Mike on and, and talk about this today about, is po- do you think poaching is an epidemic? And do you think we're only hearing a tiny fraction of the things that are going on out there that make it to the news. So Mike, why don't we take a step back? I want to, I want to ask you this question because you and I grew up generally in the same area. Actually, we grew up a few miles from each other. So it's a little bit more than generally the same area. And you would hear stories or you would hear people getting ticketed for various things. I mean, your impression growing up where we grew up, did you feel like, poaching was a big issue? Did you think a lot of people were doing it? When I say poaching, I'm not even, I'm I'm talking even just about um, intentionally breaking game law in order to to kill something. It it wasn't like what we see in QDMA. Like when I hear poaching, I think of Matt Ross because he seems to have a really huge problem with this in his area but i know kip adams has written on it and uh, mr joe hamilton as well so poaching on the national side of it everyone thinks about shooting these big bucks because they were just too big and people didn't want to do it do it fairly because you and i talk about it a lot as the game it's like playing any other game there are rules and when you play by the rules and you succeed no matter what happens you still win but there's a subtler, more undertone of what I saw personally around this area when I grew up. And that was, and, and I still look at it as 100% poaching where someone would shoot a deer, more specifically a buck during archery season and not, you know, they said, oh, well, I didn't tag it or I'm not going to tag it because I want to, I'm going to hold out now for a bigger one for enduring rifle season or whatever it might've been. And I don't know how many times there was one time and and we won't even need to get to the, you know, get into this too much. But when my wife and I were dating at the time at Trader Horn, we, I actually almost went to blows with somebody because it's just so frustrating for someone that toes the line and follows the rules and has what I call respect for my sport and the animal I'm pursuing. I look at, people shooting a deer with an arrow that has a field point on it out of season in the sense that it's just an object them. They have no respect for that animal, which is a darn shame. It is. And my guess is that when they eventually track this back to somebody, it's probably going to be some stupid young kid that maybe he is a hunter. He could be. And just, apparently bored or that's the kind of trouble he wants to get into my guess is that's probably what they're going to find but we'll see they'll catch him eventually i'm sure but yeah to your point about the not tagging thing and this is an interesting one because i faced so many dilemmas as a kid growing up and luckily my dad was always about these are the rules you follow the rules period so that's how i was brought up and i'm glad for that but on top of that there were so many people around me 
that weren't following the rules. And I think because of that, the combination of being brought up to follow the rules and then having to see so many people not following the rules, I became very, actually my friends used to call me Ranger Rick <laughs> um, because I, I just came off that way. I, I was concerned about all the rules and I wanted to make sure everybody followed the rules, the people I hunted with. But uh, I can think of a few examples. So a neighbor, for example, he didn't care how many deer tags he got. He was going to shoot as many as he could shoot. He would put six or seven deer in his freezer. And then but at the same time, he'd be the first person complaining the next year that there aren't enough deer and the game commission doesn't know what they're doing. And uh, so I had to grow up knowing that was going on. And then another story I'll share, a personal one. I was, I was, I tried picking up turkey hunting quite a bit before you and I even started turkey hunting together, Mike. And um, hooked up with someone who had always gotten a turkey and said, oh, yeah, I already got my bird. I'd like to still keep hunting. Let's go out. So I thought, like, all right, this guy will go out. He's, I'll learn something. He'll call me a turkey. And the first thing I notice is we're just driving. We're driving everywhere. And he would just stop at random locations, jump out, hit the call. And if we got an answer, we'd go pursue the bird. And half these places I'm seeing posted signs. And I, I'm just assuming he has permission on this property. Uh, so about midway through the trip, I say, do you know the person? Ah, oh, he's like, nobody cares if it's if you're turkey hunting. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, this is great. I've probably already pres- pe- trespassed on a half dozen properties. And then uh, later on, when, when I told him that wasn't okay with me, and we're driving through another area and we just happened to see it was getting toward the end of the morning. And here was this gobbler off the side of the road. And he said, he basically wanted me to wind my window down and shoot this thing out the window of the truck. Wow. And I was like, whoa, oh yeah, yeah. And so then, is of course, I never hunted with this guy again, but then immediately I started, I started questioning, what, what is this guy about? Who is he about? And then, of course, then you find out that he's illegally baiting and has poached deer. And, and basically, you learn that this is a person that everything they've ever done is a shortcut. They're, they're cheating, they're breaking the law, and it extends well beyond game. And I guess I just look back at those times and I'm proud of myself that I didn't partake in that. But then I started thinking, as I've, as I've gotten older and I see these national stories, I go out to the Western Hunt Expo in Salt Lake every year as part of my job. And two different times in the last three years, Mike, there's been a deer that was there on display that later came back to people found out that it was the deer were poached, either used an illegal tag or shot out of season. And so people, not only do they poach, they go ahead and they display these deer or whatever the game may be as if they're proud of it. And I just, I, I kind of think you're either wired that way or you're not. And I think that some of these people, in my experience, they get addicted to just doing it the wrong way. It's the only way they know. Well, and it also might be the attention or the acclaim that they get because what drew you to that guy, the stories of him always getting turkeys every year, even when other people weren't. And it, it Initially, on the out on the outside shell, you look at him as being successful, but it's not until you peel back some of those layers and find out what he's doing to be successful. And I, I also have a main like a big issue or a, or a burr underneath my saddle with some of the states, and and I'm going to use New York for an example. In New York, we cannot bait supplement. We can't supplemental feed. You have to have. Um, bird feeders pulled by certain times, things like that. But yet they still sell 
those bags of powder that you spread on the ground that have certain scents that they're in Walmart. They're in, you go to Bass Pro Shops in Auburn, New York, and you'll find an aisle of those, but yet every last one of them is illegal. But all they do is put a tag on the aisle that says, these are not to be used in New York state, blah, blah, blah. You're in the upper finger lakes region of the state. Where in the heck do you think someone's going to go with those? I mean, it's just, it's almost as the system is sometimes broken too, or it feeds into this lazy hunting style where people just expect magic to happen because of either breaking the rules or, or products or doing something outside the norm because they figure, well, who's it hurting? It's not hurting anybody, is it? Well, technically it really is. It's certainly not a victimless crime, that's for sure. I mean, this person who's shooting arrows into deer in Oregon, the deer obviously are victims, but also the entire sportsmen, the people that that want to follow the rules, we're also victims of all of this because the average person, again, is going to see this type of thing or they hear poaching cases and that's that's the impression they get. That's the image they get when they think of hunters and there's a big difference between a hunter and a poacher. And I'll take this to an even bigger level that the animal activists out there, animal rights activists, the animal rights extreme people, groups like the Humane Society, the United States, PETA, they love to throw around the term poaching and they just they try to they try very hard to associate every person that hunts as being a poacher and if you listen to their i mean i i've dealt with them throughout my career and in different capacities uh, it's it's blatant lies and they know it and it's propaganda but they will use these cases to try to portray the broader group of people to me hunters they're, they're, they're conservationists. You're providing a conservation service. If it wasn't for hunters controlling deer, for example, uh, that's going to have a huge influence on the landscape from everything from not just deer, but all the way to songbirds and uh, just your just greater wildlife conservation. But the animal rights people, they see these basically idiots doing this stuff, poaching cases, and they hold that up and say, See, these are the people that are out there shooting animals. They're out there murdering animals, and they fail to tell people about the big picture. So it's not a victimless crime. It's a crime against all of us. It's a crime against wildlife management. So, yes, in the grand scheme of things, if somebody shoots an extra deer, is it going to put a dent in the deer population? No, it's not. But what it does do is, first of all, it says a lot about that individual, but it also just casts a shadow on the whole uh, system of regulated wildlife management. And therefore, uh, we all should have a gigantic problem with it. And uh, clearly, you and I both do. You're, you're right. And there's a there's a lot of people that say, well, there's some gray in there. And, and I guess in some situations, yes, there is gray there, if you're willing to look at it. But I mean, for for you and for me, I think we're more black and white. We we you know we really toe that line because it's something that means a lot to us. This is the sport that we love. This is what we've chosen to invest a lot of our time, energy, and effort into. And so, those simple victories that you get, whether like you said, I mean, I just hearing a bird gobble this morning. It was the first one I've heard gobble this spring. And I think even possibly last year, you know, so two years I haven't heard a bird gobble because I haven't been out with having class every Saturday. I, I already won. It was it was a great day at that point. I mean, to bring home a bird was icing on top of the cake. But there's people out there that just 
aren't happy with that. They want more. They figure it's it's their right. Well, I bought my license. Some people don't even buy. I mean, I, I like those shows at Northwoods Law. Some people don't even buy a fishing license. They don't even support. So as you said about how hunters are conservationists, which we are by buying our camo, our guns, our ammunition, our licenses. But sometimes poachers, they're not even buying the lice. They're not even supporting the cause. They're just taking, mindlessly taking in most cases. That's why I always kind of get a kick out of it. And other people do too. Whenever the state wildlife agencies, one of the first things they do, of course, when they catch a poacher is they revoke their license. Well, <laughs> most of the time, these people didn't have a license. Anyway, I'm not picking on the on the state wildlife agencies. They have to do something. And also another big problem, I think, is the system itself. And that is countless times you see people convicted of poaching and then it's just such a tiny slap on the wrist and uh, the fines are way too small and you also get judges in some areas who just simply say eh, frankly I, I just don't I don't uh, I don't hand down penalties for wildlife crimes or poaching cases and maybe they have a personal conflict with the DNR in their state or whatever and you hear that countless times too which is really frustrating and so I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, Mike, and this isn't the, we're not going to give any sugar-coated answers here, but if, if you just take a second and think about, just take out of 10 hunters, just 10 random hunters, out of that 10, how many people would you say are chronic poachers? So those are people that just routinely break the law and attempt to kill something. And then I'm going to ask you how many people in that group have maybe done it one or two times and then grew up from it. And then finally, people that are just 100% by the book, follow the rules, and do it the right way. So I'll throw that to you. Okay. So for me, let me see. I would have to say, let's start with the people that do it right 100% of the time. I'm saying that they, that has to, I'm, I'm, please make me right here. I'm being very hopeful that I'm, I'm hoping it's better than 50%. You know, I want it to be I want it to be sixty percent or more. The people that have kind of wavered once or twice, I'm saying probably twenty percent. And I'm hoping the chronic lifetime, you know, scumbag loser poachers are one percent or less. Those are my numbers. Yeah. And I should have prefaced that by saying there is no right or wrong answer. This is just sort of a gut feel. Because uh, I don't have any numbers in front of me either. I was just curious as to where you would come in and I'll, I'll give you mine. <sighs> Sadly, I'm, I think we're very similar on the people that are doing it right 100% of the time. And I'm, I'm not talking about, okay, one time you forgot to take your fluorescent orange whenever youth gun season started or something. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about intentionally breaking the law uh, to try to, to try to kill something. And I, I'm with you. I, I think that if six out of 10 people are always following the rules, then we're doing okay. And I'm sad about that. I'm actually, I'm really sad that maybe it may be 60% of the people. Now, I hope, I hope the numbers are off, but, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. And in terms of people who are chronic poachers, it's just that's who they are. They're always looking for a shortcut, always breaking the law. I, I also, as similar to you, I'd say that's probably one out of 10 people. And if I took 10 random people that I know that hunt, uh, you could probably find one in there. And then I, I think also I'm similar to you. So we're on the same page here. It's probably two or three people that have maybe done something they wish they wouldn't have a time or two or, but, but didn't, 
graduate to being this chronic poacher. So, um, but at any rate, I think the number I'm, I'm most sad about is the fact that six out of 10 people are probably doing it the right way 100% of the time. And, and you know, to, to kind of follow that up, these are just our feelings of the people that we surround ourselves with or some of the stories that we that we hear. But I will have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with the people that at least I've been talking to or have been hanging around with more. They seem to be doing it the right way. And now with the social media aspect of it, where people like to uh, post, I think that also can be of benefit because all of a sudden it provides a public record and information now can be checked. Dates can be checked. So you can actually call BS on somebody if they said, oh, hey, I shot a a buck on Friday and they posted on Wednesday night, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, you know, I mean, so all of a sudden I think now that social media, even though I know what your feelings are about it, not that it's totally negative, but I think that at least with a public record now, it might make people kind of stop and think and, and pa- take pause, but hunting's exciting and people get excited. And when you get excited, sometimes you do things that you normally wouldn't do in most situations. I think that's a great point. And yeah, social media, it's amazing how many of these knuckleheads end up turning themselves in because they, they can't help it. It's just, first of all, it tells you why they're out there in the first place. It's to obtain some type of glory or some type of trophy, whatever it is. And then they end up implicating themselves because things don't match up and they put things on social media. That happens all the time. I can tell you, I read about it pretty constantly. Uh, But yeah, I think, like you said, social media is a double-edged sword. Um, You feel like that the only reason, the only time you should post something is if you've shot some giant trophy, whatever the animal may be. And because of that, I think it puts pressure on people and they go out and do things that maybe are out of character, things they shouldn't have done. So it's it's great to be able to share it. But at the same time, we've been our, our own worst enemy as a hunting community on social media. So um, I don't want to belabor the point here. I think we got our point across. And I think to me, I'll just one final question about this, Mike. I'll give you my answer first this time since I made you go first last time. And do I think poaching is an epidemic? And... I'm going to say my answer to that is going to be yes. And I'm going to say yes. I think it's an epidemic because of the numbers we gave. I don't think we can say that we think only six out of 10 people are doing it right all the time and then say it's not an epidemic. So um, I think it's this isn't something we should hide from as sportsmen. It's something we should seek to do better at. But I do feel like, as I sit here right now, spring of 2018, that poaching is an epidemic. Well, for me, I believe that even though I haven't been exposed to it for years and years and years running into somebody like that, I still think that it's out there. And unfortunately that is what, as you have said before, that the public sees, which is very unfortunate. But to speak personally to the listener, what you really have to take a look at is take a look at yourself. And even though, I'm still going to go back to my my New York reference. Even though stores or um, sporting goods shops and things like that provide something that's there, still know what the rules are, know what is right, because the reward that you will get by going out and competing on an even playing field and 
if you even if you don't succeed 99 times out of 100 that one is so much more rewarding than 20 or 30 or 40 that you have to bend the rules or quote unquote cheat and i think that's a perfect place to leave it um so again uh you had a great morning mike but what do you have what do you have coming up here in the week ahead well week ahead um heading to a conference and after that it's a quick turnaround and i'm bringing my youngest daughter home from college she's just finished up her first year my other one has an internship at a hospital so she's going to be staying up there for the entire summer so it's going to be a, a divided family back and forth, a lot of traveling the rest of the summer to take care of camp and things like that. But this upcoming week, a lot of traveling. So out to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, right on the ocean, and then back home here in 48 hours, and then another five and a half hours up to Rochester, turn around five and a half hours back. And hopefully that'll all occur before Saturday evening. <laughs> and then that explains why you said, hey, if we don't get a show in today... I might not get one in for a while. So you've got a busy, busy schedule. And mine is not too bad. It was busy leading up to this. I've come back from DC and working. It's just such a pleasure to go. I, I get to go to this meeting a couple of times a year. It's a policy council headed up by the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. But there's a number of different conservation organizations represented there. And we're talking about challenging things like poaching and so on. But I can tell you that it's just People should at least feel good about how many great organizations and great people there are out there fighting for conservation and wildlife every single day. And it's a real pleasure and an honor for me to be able to work alongside a lot of these folks. So I came back from that meeting and came back pretty energized. And we've got a lot going on in my job, a lot of different issues going on in the deer world that never ends. And uh, so I'm doing, I'm trying to keep that flowing, but also, uh, Trying to get out a few times turkey hunting. I'd like to put a tag on a bird here in Ohio if I can. And uh, going to be heading to Kansas here. I think it'd be a little over a week from now uh, with Ryan Bronson, actually, who we had on the show talking about uh, whenever we did the show about dogs, losing a dog. And uh, Ryan and I are going to go to Kansas and hunt for a few days out there for turkeys. So uh, something for me to look forward to. So you and I are going to be really busy and hopefully it won't be too long. We can get back on the horn here and put together another episode. Yeah, we definitely have to try and maybe even squeeze in a hunt ourselves this year for the first time in a long time. Yeah, it's not a very far trip across for either one of us. So we'll have to figure that one out and I would love to do that. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and call it an episode. I thank you again for for listening, folks. And and I do appreciate the feedback. I had someone text me just yesterday, an outdoor writer who has listened to the show and, and wanted to point out that uh, he enjoyed uh, the show we did with Pat Durkin, which we did uh, quite a while ago. Pat, uh, the legendary outdoor writer, did an interview with him. I think at the Southeast Deer Study Group, that was actually quite a while ago now. And so people are going back and listening to the older episodes. And this uh, young man is also an outdoor writer, but would love to follow in Pat's footsteps and, and was pretty inspired by it. So I love getting those notes. Go onto the iTunes and leave us a review on there. We appreciate seeing those. That is our paycheck. <laughs> that tells us that you like what we're doing and you're enjoying it and it keeps us going. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and close it up there. We appreciate you listening. Have a good week, everybody. We'll catch up with you soon.
Thank you for listening to the Red Dog Road Podcast. If you like what you heard here, please consider subscribing and telling your friends. You can also visit the website and blog at reddogroad.net.